This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. There has been a concern among some countries about too much westernization occurring in their lands. But now there is a shift and the influence of Asia, including the importance of the Chinese economy, may be the new area of focus. Not that it's necessarily a bad thing, but many countries are already realizing now, including President Trump, the importance of working with their leadership. A new book from the Financial Times, Gideon Rockman, looks at the rise of the overall economy in Asia and the decline, in part, in the U.S. economy. The title of the book is Easternization, Asia's Rise and America's Decline from Obama and Trump, or I should say from Obama to Trump and beyond. And Gideon joins us on the show right now. Gideon, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, So with obviously the recent talks between uh, President Trump and President Xi, uh, what did you take out of those meetings? Obviously not a lot of information provided, but certainly there were some things discussed in advance of those conversations. Uh, There was a story out about President Xi and and great infrastructure investment in the United States. How, How do you view that relationship right now? Well, I think the most striking thing about the Xi-Trump summit was the extraordinary shift in Trump's rhetoric about China after the meeting uh, compared to the kind of thing he'd been saying in the year running up to uh, his election during the campaign and immediately afterwards. So that during the campaign, Trump adopts a very anti-Chinese position, says that China is raping the United States economy, that they're unfair traders, that he'll name them as currency manipulators, threatens to slap huge tariffs on Chinese goods, and also to confront China geopolitically uh, over Taiwan, over South China Sea, and so on. And it's um, in a way summarized by one of the things he says in the campaign is that if I meet the Chinese leader, I'm not going to treat him to a fancy banquet. I'm going to just take him to McDonald's, and then we're <laughs> going to go straight back to the negotiating table. Right. Well, in fact, the first summit is rather different. He does give him a fancy meal. I looked at the menu, and I think it was Dover sole seared in champagne. And the, the change in menu also applies to policy, where although Trump you know, makes no bones that he's worried about the trade surplus that China has, very large trade surplus China has with the U.S., in the end, there weren't any tariffs. There was just a joint study committee set up. And Trump uh, comes out of the, uh, the the summit and saying that he has a wonderful relationship with Xi, that they've got along very well, and uh, it's a much, much more cooperative tone. Now, whether that lasts over the long run, we'll get to see, because as we one thing we've learned about the Trump presidency is that he is a very volatile person who can change his views on things pretty quickly. But for the moment, uh, some of that sort of threatening language towards China and towards Asian countries in general that are seen or were seen as unfair traders has been uh, really downplayed. So let's see, Dover Seoul or a Big Mac? Uh, I think I'm going to go to the Dover Seoul, right? <laughs> I think that was she's view, yeah. So, yeah. And seared in champagne. I mean, it always well, adds something to it, I think. And, and of course, yes. So then be, because of this recognition of the importance of China going forward, what role do they take as a quote-unquote world leader going forward, do you think? Well, I think that one of the real significant things about President Xi in particular is that he came into power in 2012. So he's been there for coming up for five years, about to probably almost certainly be renewed for another five years. And he's a different sort of Chinese leader. So that 
for about 30 years, when China begins to embrace capitalism, you had Chinese leaders who were very careful not to upset their neighbors, not to upset the United States, because they thought correctly, I think, that the number one priority for the country was very rapid economic growth, and that the route to that economic growth was to have access to global markets, and that if you're going to have access to global markets, you don't upset the United States, you don't upset your neighbors, you just kind of keep it cool. Whereas I think with Xi, China's now such a large economy that it's able to be more assertive and more ambitious politically. And you've seen that with him. China's got a whole set of unresolved territorial disputes with its neighbors, with Japan, with India, with a lot of the Southeast Asian countries. And it also, I think, in broad terms, is not really comfortable with the idea that America should be the dominant power in the Western Pacific, in its China's immediate neighborhood. They haven't really done much about that in the pre-Xi years, but they're beginning to do stuff. Most obviously, they've started this program of island building, which yeah. is basically taking little reefs in the South China Sea and, and dredging and, and, and literally building them up and then turning them into uh, military installations. It's now been clear over the last couple of years, which is a very dramatic kind of grab, a water grab, in what, you know, you might say, well, who cares about the South China Sea? Well, it's a long way from the United States. Well, the U.S. has said it cares. And there's a reason, really, because it's to do with this shift in economic power to Asia. When Hillary Clinton wrote a piece saying this was going to be America's Pacific century in 2011, she said, well, the point about the South China Sea is that 50% of the world's commercial traffic, merchandise traffic, goes through that sea. And uh, 30 out of the 40 busiest shipping routes in the world go through the South China Sea. So it's not insignificant, to put it mildly, if China says, well, these are all our territorial waters. And so that's just one pretty important example of how under Xi you've got a China that's prepared to basically use its muscle, its its economic muscle and military muscle, much more than it has been, say, uh, before he came to power. Which is interesting considering the fact that uh, the, the, the thoughts around military, especially with the recent meeting between Presidents Trump and Xi, uh, you had the, the airstrike in Syria, and a lot of people thought that maybe part of this was also showing President Xi that the United States would not, you know, stand down in any way, shape or form because of what had been potentially happening in the South China Sea and also because of North Korea and the relationship that China and North Korea have. Absolutely. Well, look, I mean, it's been the big building question uh, in U.S.-Chinese relations is, to put it bluntly, with if China really pushes its ambitions, would in the last resort be the United States be prepared to fight them, to, to go to war with them? Right. Um, and uh, the Chinese, I think, think at the back of their mind, probably not, provided they play it carefully enough. But they have to be careful because Japan, for example, which is, uh, is a treaty ally of the United States, and uh, the U.S. has said that it will defend Japan in the event of a conflict. And indeed, Obama, who, as you know, was lambasted for weakness over Syria and so on, yeah. on Japan was pretty firm. He went to Tokyo and said, there are these, the, the focus of the U.S.-Japan dispute is these uninhabited islands, which are sort of in control of Japan, but the, the Chinese say are theirs. And both navies and air forces kind of buzz around each other in that area. They're called, in Japanese, the Senkaku Islands. Well, how, and, how, uh, 
Go ahead. Obama I'm sorry. Finish up. Tokyo, sorry, just to finish the thought. Obama went to Tokyo, was asked, are those islands covered by the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty? And he said, yeah, they are. So in a sense, he was saying that we would be prepared to go to war over a Jap- Japanese, uh, Chinese territorial clash. I, I wanted to ask, playing off of that, what the overall view of President Obama was uh, with the Asian countries and, and obviously the relationship uh, to a degree he was trying to build up uh, and, and the relationship, if there was a significant one, between uh, the United States and China and he and President Xi the last few years. Well, look, it, it, was a, it was a slightly complicated, multifaceted thing. But I think that to, to simplify, Obama comes in thinking that it's in his interest to have a very strong relationship with the Chinese, not really interested that much in the strategic rivalry, wanting to work with them on things like climate change, trade, cross-national issues. He then goes through a period of disillusionment, finds it's very hard to work with the Chinese, gets alarmed by this Chinese island building and by other Chinese territorial uh, demands. And by the end of the Obama years, you have a much tenser U.S.-Chinese relationship. And the U.S. responds in particular to the island building by sending the Navy through what would be the territorial waters around those islands to really make the point that America does not acknowledge the legitimacy of these these islands and the territorial claims that flow from them. But Obama's treading a very fine line. He wants to make that point without actually risking getting into a war. Um, The Chinese don't really know what to make of Trump. I mean, who does? But I think that they uh, are suddenly... You're right to go back to the point you make. I think that Trump would not have been would have rather enjoyed being able to tell Xi over, over the Dover Soul, oh, by the way, I've just ordered these military strikes on Syria. Because, of course, it sends a, a message that I'm a person who's comfortable using military force. And I think that a lot of the American foreign policy establishment will hope that that restores a degree of deterrence to the United States, would make China hesitate if it, to do the next kind of set of island building or equivalent action. But, of course, there's always a risk associated with that because the hint that, that uh, Trump is currently sending, that he right. would be prepared to use unilateral military force on North Korea, is uh, alarming not just to the Chinese, but also to the South Koreans who are American allies, who, of course, are scared of North Korea, scared, don't like their nuclear program, but equally know that if America were to actually launch a strike on North Korea, it would be South Korea that would be in the front line, and uh, there's huge numbers of artillery pieces lined up, pointing at Seoul, the capital of South Korea, and ready essentially to level it if if the uh, war broke out on the Korean peninsula. So it's one thing, I think, to send a message with an almost symbolic, quite uh, pinprick strike on Syria, 60 cruise missiles on an airbase. It would be a completely different thing to suggest, well, that, that shows that I'm prepared to take military action against North Korea, which would be a much bigger and more dangerous conflict. We are joined by Gideon Rackman of the Financial Times. He is also the book, author of the book Easternization, Asia's Rise and America's Decline from Obama to Trump and Beyond. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Going back to the, the, the economical issue for a second, uh, the, the fact that the IMF uh, made the designation as China's the world's biggest economy, how, do, how does that play into the belief of that country of their role, their piece of the stage on the global uh, on the global spectrum right now? 
I think it was a big moment. Uh, I mean, actually, oddly, the China, neither the Chinese nor the Americans wanted to make a huge fuss about it. Right. Uh, this was in 2014. The IMF said by one, there are two basic me- ways of measuring the size of the economy. One is at real exchange rates, i.e. what a dollar is worth now. And another is what's called purchasing power, where you try to uh, adjust to, for what, what you can buy. And they said by this latter measure, purchasing power, which incidentally is the one that my own newspaper, the Financial Times, thinks is the more accurate measure. They said by PPP, China is now the world's largest economy. This was in 2014. And that was a historic moment in some ways. But the U.S. didn't particularly want to make a big noise about it for obvious reasons. And the Chinese, I think, partly because they are still have an element of this hesitance of provoking the West by scaring them, didn't make too much of a fuss about it. But I think overall... There is an increasing consciousness of the economic power of China and the leverage it gives them and just the sort of intangible confidence it gives them. And there are other measures. China is now the world's largest manufacturer. It's the world's largest exporter. And it's also now increasingly a huge consumer market. It's the biggest market in the world for vehicles, for smartphones, for oil. Uh, And it's potentially the largest foreign direct investor in the world. They've got a lot of capital that they're keen to invest. And that gives them confidence. It gives them leverage as well, because they can go to countries around the world and say, look, uh, if you're our our enemy, we can punish you by uh, blocking access to our markets. And they're pretty ruthless about doing that. But if you're our friend, we can invest, we can build roads, bridges, and uh, therefore much better to to be on our side than than, than the Americans. Uh, Then... You take also a little bit of time looking at how each country kind of views uh, history and, and the differences between the U.S. and China. Uh, China, China more cyclical and the U.S. more linear. Can you uh, delve yeah. into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's a fascinating interaction to see the, that between the U.S. and China because their histories are so different. Uh Essentially, I, I, I would start the book by talking about a meeting that I was present at with President Xi Jinping in Beijing in 2013. And one of the first things he says to foreigners, the group of about 20 of us, is that the thing to understand about China is that we have thousands of years of history. And he sees himself yep. very much as an heir to not just the Communist Party and Mao Zedong, but to the Song Dynasty in the 1200s, to the Ming Dynasty, the Tang, all the way back to before Christ. Uh, and th- this history is very real to them. Um, and I think that they, it also inclines them to think in cyclical terms, so that they think that you know, countries can have a bad, literally about two or three hundred years. They can have a bad dynasty where things go wrong, and then they come back. And that's naturally the way of things. Uh, so that in the Chinese mind, they had to be front a bad couple of centuries, starting with what they call the century of humiliation, to the mid-19th century when the British, first of all, and then other colonial powers come in and uh, grab trade concessions, take over the running of certain Chinese cities, force uh, the uh, Hong Kong to be handed over, followed then by the invasion of Japan, uh, of China. And this is a very bad period for China. But they now feel very strongly that with this cyclical view of history, that they're coming back and that this is the, the, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation as she puts it, which incidentally is a kind of Chinese version of make China great again. Yeah, And I think, to me, the contrast with the American view, which is a much younger country, has only been around for, you know, since the 1776, the Declaration of Independence, and has really only moved one way. It's become more powerful, more prosperous, and so it doesn't have the cyclical Chinese view of, you know, you have a good century, a bad century. For America, the idea of progress 
uh, and more power is, is in bills. And it seems sort of unnatural that that could ever reverse. And I think that is a very different way of thinking. What do you make of this run of nationalism that we have seen, obviously, with President Trump and some of the things that he has said, but also uh, the Brexit and the potential other changes that may very well happen in Europe as well? Yeah, I think it's one of the really interesting um, kind of reactions, if you like, to globalization, that the sort of pat thing that we said as trade became more integrated and people moved around more um travel becomes easier, is, well, national boundaries are going to matter less and less. We're going to move into a sort of integrated, borderless world, was the famous book of the early 90s. And we've now discovered that actually borders and nations still matter a lot, a lot to electorates. Um, and that one of the reasons that I think my own country, Britain, voted against uh, staying in the EU and wanted to, to go for Brexit was a sense that the nation's identity was being eroded by Europe and also that there was a loss of control, that we no longer were able to make our own laws in quite the same way we had got used to because of the supranational lawmaking of the European Union. And so there was a sense that actually we don't have to accept that. We want to go back to being a self-governing nation insofar as it's possible. So that was the British expression of it. But it's clearly a transnational phenomenon. You have Trump with the whole America First slogan that, and the, the constant refrain from him and from Steve Bannon and others that America's gone too far in embracing globalism. And that resonated with people far more, I think, than the more connected kind of elites on the coast realized. Uh, that, that was a very potent slogan. And the interesting thing is, you know, the two, those two examples, Brexit and Trump, are drawn from the developed world, from the West. But you see it uh, outside the West as well. You see it in, in Asia. Xi Jinping is nothing if not a nationalist. India, Narendra Modi, the prime minister, is a Hindu nationalist who also talks about the rejuvenation of the nation. The Japanese prime minister, Shinzo Abe, another nationalist figure, very focused on the idea of rejuvenation of Japan, you can go around the globe. There's uh, Putin in Russia. What's he about if not make Russia great again? And so there's something going on in the air. And I think it's partly a kind of reaction to globalization in the sense that the nation is still actually the unit that people identify with most strongly, uh, but also a pervasive perhaps, sense of insecurity, economic insecurity, but also social insecurity to do with uh, rapid social change brought about by globalization and immigration, and maybe even physical insecurity related to terrorism. And all of that leads to a resurgence of nationalism and are looking for strong leaders who can protect the nation and the people within it. Gideon Rackman is the author of the book Easternization. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you're not able to get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So with with the growth of some of the economies uh, over in, uh, in Asia, and specifically China and the growth that they have, what is the reaction to the other countries in that region? And I think of somebody like Japan, obviously their economy not struggling, but they also have one of their major corporations, Toshiba, uh, potentially saying that they are going to have to shut down their operations, not necessarily because of the the part of their business we've known for years, but because of their investment that they had in nuclear with Westinghouse that failed so badly. Yeah, well, look, I think that if there's any country that's really terrified by the rise of China, it's not not the United States, it's Japan. 
because of the historical antagonism between the two countries. So that, you know, if you, if you take the, the Chinese view, which, as I say, goes back thousands of years, their view is that China is naturally the center of Asia, the dominant power, the middle kingdom was the phrase. Right. But then in the, the 19th century, Japan industrialized much faster, ended up invading China, um, brutalizing it. And that historical grievance has not been forgotten. Uh, indeed, a lot of Chinese nationalism is focused on Japan. And the, Chi- the Japanese didn't have to worry about that too much uh, 30 years ago when the Japanese economy was absolutely booming. Japan was one of the wealthiest, most advanced countries in the world, and China was stuck in the doldrums of rural poverty. Right. But now that Japan has gone through a 20-, 30-year stagnation, uh, the country is aging, the population is shrinking, a lot of its leading companies, they're by no means all, but some, such as Toshiba, you, that you point to are in trouble, uh, then now, and the, the Chinese economy surpassed the size of the Japanese economy in 2010, and the gap between the two is only growing. China's putting a lot of money into its military. It's quite a scary time to be Japan because you've got this huge, fast-growing country with a grievance against you right next door. Is is the old term Westernization, is that a little bit of an evil word now because of... Uh, of this shift globally uh, with the importance on China and and other countries in that region? Well, I don't know whether it's it's an evil word, but I think that there is a sense, uh, particularly in China, but also in quite a lot of Asian countries, uh, including ones that are loosely allied with the West and that in some ways still look to the West uh, as a sort of in an aspirational way because um, Western economies still have the highest living standards, though they may not have the largest economies, because that's a function of population. Right. And I mean, I think one of the things about uh, China and India and so on is that um, we used to, in the U.S.-dominated era, get used to the idea that America was both the largest economy in the world and had the highest living standards. Now, America and, the, to a lesser extent, the European countries will continue for a long time to have the highest living standards. People will be richer but they may not have the largest economies because China and India are countries of over a billion people. So they need to only get to roughly a quarter of the wealth levels of the average American per capita. And they have the largest economy in the world. So you can still have people aspiring on an individual level to westernize in the sense that they want to uh, achieve the lifestyle of the West. But they may, on a geopolitical level, no longer be willing to defer to the West because the aggregate power of an India or a China is, is, is huge because they're very, very big economies. Right. And so I think that they may think that Western lifestyles and some kind of political thing, depending on who you are, are worth aspiring to, but they're no longer quite so prepared to accept the idea that the West calls the shots in geopolitical or even uh, economic order terms. Because there was so much uh, talk during the run-up to the, the U.S. election, uh, and, and obviously the rhetoric that President Trump brought forth about uh, portions of, of that region, uh, is it your expectation that this meeting that they just had, Trump and Xi, will be the start of, of a fairly good relationship between the United States and China moving forward? I think it's too it's too unpredictable to say that with, with great confidence. Because partly because Trump really hasn't completely shown his hand. As I said, there was a big shift in rhetoric, and maybe that is it. And we will now see that he's going to move towards a more positive relationship with China. 
Um, and indeed, that is the sort of Chinese view of how American presidents work. If you go into Beijing, they will say, they all start by saying they're going to get tough with China. Bill Clinton did. Uh, so, so did uh, George W. Bush. But in the end, they all realize that it's China's too important uh, to, to really behave like that. And they come around to a more conciliatory pattern. And so that they, I think, are seeing that with Trump. The question is whether Trump, because of his volatility and because of his longstanding grievances about trade, will be able to stick with this more conciliatory line or whether he could actually go back to the more hostile line if he finds that, as he sees it, China is not playing ball on trade. Because I think the Chinese will offer symbolic concessions and they will offer you know, more access for American beef and American investment banks. Yeah. And they will certainly be happy to fund um, you know, big investments in, in, in the U.S. if those are profitable investments. But I don't think they're up for a very fundamental change in uh, in their thinking uh, about the economic relationship. So if that's what Trump is demanding, there could still be trouble ahead. Gideon, thank you very much. Greatly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Gideon Rackman of the Financial Times. You can follow him on Twitter at Gideon Rockman, R-A-C-H-M-A-N. The book uh, Easternization is out in bookstores right now and available for purchase online. Pick it up. It's a very interesting look at at what could be a, 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 a quite an interesting relationship between the U.S. and uh, and Asian countries, specifically China, in the nearest in the years to come. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.